Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by State Historian Emeritus Walt Woodward and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. And I'm Mary Donahue for Connecticut Explored. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks with support from our listeners. You can help us continue to produce the podcast by donating directly to Grading the Nutmeg on the Connecticut Explored website at ctexplore.org. Click the Donate button at the top, then look for the Grading the Nutmeg donation link at the bottom. Donations in any amount are greatly appreciated. We thank you. As a preservationist, I have always believed that if you knew the history of a place, it would make you care more about it. And if you uncovered the history, you'd feel inspired by the stories of the people who came before you. Today's episode reveals the importance of citizen historians, people who are dedicated to saving a historic place's story, as well as preserving the site for the future. Masses of Eastern European Jews began immigrating to the United States in the 1880s. Between 1881 and 1924, more than two and a half million Jews arrived in America. Many settled in large cities such as New York. But some were aided in becoming farmers and landowners by the philanthropy of the Baron de Hirsch, a wealthy German Jew who had amassed a fortune in building railroads. Funded by de Hirsch, the American Jewish Agricultural Society helped Jews buy farmland, provided money for synagogues, published a Yiddish farm magazine, and had Jewish farm agents. In Connecticut, an early Jewish farm community was established in Chesterfield, in the town of Montville, northwest of New London. In this episode, we are going to hear more about how this early Jewish community's history was saved by a group of descendants, and how the site of the group's first synagogue and creamery have been preserved as an archaeological site. My guest today is Nancy Savin, the 2022 winner of Preservation Connecticut's Harlan H. Griswold Award, presented by Preservation Connecticut and the Connecticut State Historic Preservation Office. Harlan Griswold once said, To me, preservation is more about my grandchildren than about my grandparents. Her award citation reads, Through her selfless preservation efforts, both small and large, Nancy Savin is helping to build a better future for our children and grandchildren. A college graduate in voice and music history, Nancy spent 17 years at Connecticut Public as an award-winning producer and host of arts and culture programming. But she is also the great-great-granddaughter of Hirsch Kaplan, an Eastern European immigrant who arrived in New York City in 1887. So how did he end up in tiny Chesterfield as a Jewish farmer? And what was the New England Hebrew Farmers of the Emanuel Society? We'll find out in this episode. Welcome to the podcast. Well, it is a great pleasure. You and I go way back, don't we, Mary? (laughs) Yes, we do. And I know that a lot of the ins and outs of this wonderful story, but I want you to be able to share this great story with our listeners. I think the first question is, how in the world... Did your family come to Chesterfield, Connecticut? Well, that is a great question. That is the question. And it's, there's there's a, a very complete, when I say complete, I mean, there is a historical evidence-based, as they say, um, background to how my family and hundreds 
of Russian Jewish immigrants came to Connecticut in the 1890s, let's say basically until maybe 1910, 1920 or so. I, I guess you just have to start quickly. The fact that there were maybe more than a million Jewish people living in what they called the Pale of Settlement. That was basically the Russian empire at the time. Maybe the one that Putin aspires to still, who knows? I think it is actually, because my great-great-grandfather did come from Pereyaslav, which was south of Kiev in Ukraine. So there oh. we are. But anyhow, he, he was a philanthropist. He was an industrialist. He was a, a wealthy um, businessman and he had a heart. And he saw that his um, the Jewish population was suffering. There were exceptions, but in the main, you couldn't own land. You couldn't pursue your favorite profession. God knows. You couldn't even go to a Russian public school. There was, there was no such thing. He wanted to make the, uh, the Jewish people independent, proud, and not, not be oppressed. This is the Baron de Hirsch. This is Baron Maurice de Hirsch. She's born in Germany, married a, a very wealthy Brussels, a Jewish family, banking family. He uh, he helped to build the um, Paris to Vienna and then Vienna to Istanbul train. And so he was a very clever man, very intelligent man and a very compassionate person. He set up in Europe first and then in New York in 1890, sorry, 1891, uh, an endowment fund that helped bring Jews to New York. And then they arrived in New York, and then he helped to settle them through the fund throughout the United States. So you say, well, how did he help them? He helped them because he became a bank where for a very, you know, maybe $400, I don't know what the equivalency is <laughs> for now, but it wasn't a, a lot. You could you could put a down payment on a plot of land, and then he would hold, the Baron de Hirsch Fund would hold the mortgage. So it was a way for the Jewish people the Jewish immigrants to own land, to become citizens, to begin to assimilate. And he was very keen on confronting anti-Semitism. And he felt that if you owned land, right, and you became part of the greater society, that you were on your way to, to becoming, um, you know, live, living a, a life that was less victimized. I know you've done a great deal of work on the Baron de Hirsch farming communities in Connecticut. So there is this theory that, you know, back to the land, back to the farming, and, and that was part of it. But I think in his mind, it was more not that he wanted them to be farmers. He wanted them to be citizens. And he knew that if they owned land and they got into small businesses, then their children, which is what happened, right? With once they learned English and once they went to the Chesterfield one-room schoolhouse or maybe Buckley High School in New London, like my father did, they would go into businesses. And uh, then their children were the ones who got to go to college. They didn't go to college. <laughs> so, so it was, um, and Connecticut wasn't the only place. Obviously there was, New Jersey was very active, and and not only did he provide these mortgages, which enabled uh, the immigrants to buy land, but um, he also, in certain places, set up training, education, vocational training, education, and so he knew that there was a great deal of work to be done. These people, did, you know, they didn't speak, and they probably didn't even speak Russian. They spoke Yiddish. They certainly didn't speak English, and there was a great deal of uh, fine tuning, shall we say, that needed to go on. But he at least set the template. 
And this was, he did this also in Argentina. There are Baird Hirsch colonies there. And <clears throat> as I say, all over the United States in the Baron de Hirsch files, uh, archives, I should say, at the uh, American Jewish Historical Society in New York, there's a complete archive. We are box 64. <laughs> we didn't, but, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Uh, we didn't know that when we met uh, 30 years ago. No, um, we didn't. <laughs> but, um, so now your, your great grandfather didn't just come by himself. No, he's great, great, first of all. Great, great grandfather didn't come right. by himself. No, he, he, with him? he happened to have been, uh, this was in uh, 1887, December 1887, he arrived. And uh, he was already married. He had a, my great grandfather and he had, the great grandfather was already married. So he sort of picked up his entire family, which, you know, when I think about it, or when you think about any poor refugees, how do you do that? You know, how do you leave absolutely everything that you're familiar with, that you're comfortable and just go off to unknown circumstances? So he but he landed in Brooklyn in 1887, as I say, and he had a little coterie of fellow Russian Jewish immigrants. Now, they say if you look at the, um, the census, they would say from Russia. Well, it was Russian Empire, but they were from Poland. They were from Romania. They were from from Ukraine, certain parts of Russia and so forth. And uh, they all sort of got together and they all said, you, you know, we're doing menial jobs. He was putting glass, not that, you know, to put glass into a window pane is a bad, <laughs> a bad job, but it wasn't. He was a learned man. He, this was not something he had studied to be a rabbi. Uh, I don't know if I told you that. And um so this was, he felt beneath him. So coming to Chesterfield, <clears throat> organizing this little group, getting in touch with the De Hirsch Fund, they bought the land before the De Hirsch Fund gave them money to build the synagogue and to build the creamery. So they, uh, all, these, it was a small group, but once they got there, obviously other people came, either relatives or friends. And and it, I, I have um there was a lot of um, newspaper coverage of the fact that these Russian Jewish immigrants uh, had come to Chesterfield. In 1892, there's an article, Immigrants as Farmers. And it, it's very interesting. Someday I hope to publish all of these because the way in which the Yankee community, both in New York and Connecticut, sort of saw these bearded non-English speaking immigrants is very interesting. There really was no, you know, what we call anti-Semitism. They were very welcoming and they liked each other because the immigrants were very hardworking and the Yankees admired them. So. so maybe you could explain why it's so important to, in order to have a Jewish congregation, for example, you have to have 10 men in order to really put together the service uh, and have it work well. Maybe you could explain why it's so important to the Jewish community to have that synagogue as their one of their main efforts and their focus for community. Right. Well, that's it. The Jewish religion, the Orthodox. We have to remember, I have to take a step back. And when people say Jewish people, you have the, it's a very long spectrum. I mean, people can be born Jewish, they can be culturally Jewish, like I am. 
they're not all the same religiously. They're the very, very observant and the not so observant. So the very, very observant coming from the ancient days as um, prescribed in the Torah and, and the, uh, all the commentary books, there was your life every single day was religious. All the things you did, if you slaughtered a chicken in order to eat, that had to be done in a very thoughtful manner because you were taking life. And, and if you didn't do it without the right prayers, right? Or without the right gratitude, uh, then, then it was, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a sin, so to speak. So totally interlaced into their every single day life was how to, how to live, how to pray. And they've always had, as you know, from ancient times, we're, lo we're looking at now, you know, two to 3,000 years, they've always had a temple as a way for people to gather. And one of those basic rules was in order to approach God, you need 10 consenting men. The women, no, not a lot. <laughs> so the, the synagogue, I guess in the very beginning, they prayed in my great-great-grandfather's living room. And then um, they, with their own money, not the Baron Hirsch money, bought a piece of land in Chesterfield. And then when it came time to build it, well, that was a little bit more than they had. Then they went to the Baron Hirsch Fund. They got money to build the synagogue. And it's so interesting because it's basically a little Yankee church <laughs> without the steeple and a little Jewish star on it. It's a lovely, it was a lovely little building. I was in it. As a kid, as you know. And so when you went to the synagogue, explain where the women sat and where the men sat, how that service would go. So the pattern, the architectural pattern layout was the same it has been all through the Middle Ages. You had an ark at the eastern end where the Torahs were kept. Those are the Holy, the Bible, the Old, uh, Old Testament. And then in the middle straight behind that in the middle of the building there was uh, a reading a section it was elevated you had it was elevated above the where the people sat so that you went up the stairs maybe three stairs and there was a big a platform with a railing i happen to still have one of those banisters because when the synagogue burned out i i don't know what's ever going to happen to it but i have one. and they would spread out the torah they'd read the particular portion for the week then on either side there was the men's section and the women's section. So, you know, the Orthodox Jews today still separate the women from the men. I personally don't like that a lot, but I'm not Orthodox. And uh, they felt it was a distraction. If the men had the women next to them, they wouldn't pray as hard. <laughs> so that's how it was. And then in the back, there was a stove to keep warm. And then there was a little teeny entranceway. And that was it. Very plain, you know, one room very basic, but it was it was their synagogue, and um, there was a great deal of to do when it was one dedicated. Of, one of the most amazing things that you had in your possession that I held in my hands is the minute book from the congregation mm -hmm. written Yiddish. And I know when I first met you, and I was holding that book, and I was like, "Oh, this is making me crazy. I want to know what it says." And yeah. I am not a Yiddish reader, so um, am I. <laughs> and so that book was just like a mystery what it was going to contain for years. But explain how that 
got translated. Yeah. So it's true that that was um, begun in 1892. <clears throat> and the last entry was in English by my uncle in 1933, basically from 1892 to 1920. Not at all consistent, not at all chronological, but enough, enough entries over the years that there was a, it was just replete with information about how the building was taken care of, what the congregant should do, what the plans were, and so forth, and the activities of the, of, of the congregation. It was totally in Yiddish, as I said. That's what these people spoke and wrote. And uh, I had no idea what it said, because I can't read fluent Yiddish either. So the modern age is a magnificent place to be, is it not? Because not only were we able to find a... Yiddishist, the woman in the New York, Miriam Lieberstein, who was able to translate it and organize it chronologically, put it in the right order and make sense out of it for us. Not only were we able to translate it, we were able to approach the um, Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts, which has collected Yiddish books, as you know, thousands of Yiddish books from the old world, and they're very interested in all things Yiddish. And they put the original, I, had, I went to New Jersey and had the original book photographed. So it became a facsimile edition, plus the, uh, an, an introduction, plus Miriam's translation. And it's all online. That is so fantastic. And we're going to put a link to that in oh, the show please. notes so the listeners can find it. I When I went to Miriam's talk about it, I was uh, about this project, I was surprised and think she mentioned the fact that, for example, Yiddish doesn't necessarily have a lot of punctuation or capitalization. And furthermore, it obviously this was written, you know, over 100 years ago. And so there's a lot of uh, archaic words and phrases that she had to figure out. So the fact that this is available online, and you can really read the contents, because this amazingly talented translation specialist uh, was able to do it is phenomenal. I just want to comment on that. Another way when people write, they text today and they write Y-R for your. Right. You, you know what that means, right? You know what she's the person saying your. So in Hebrew, you don't really need all the vowels if you recognize the combination of consonants and the words. So you're absolutely right. There were no vowels and there were no capitals. But the, the other part of this that I want to uh, be sure to mention is not only did it have the activities of the congregation, but in 1894, two years after they were established as the New England Hebrew farmers, and that's another story, they wrote a constitution. I think that's an amazing thing about how they were going to proceed and what were the rules and what were the regulations and how they were going to resolve disputes between members. I think that that sort of distinguishes this particular little colony or settlement. Oh, because it's just amazing. It's amazing, first of all, that this thing has survived and, and it was never thrown out over the years. And second of all, it's such a testament to being sort of seeing yourself as this autonomous group that has some agency mm -hmm. and can make those kind of decisions mm -hmm. and put them down on paper is just amazing. 
I have I have to say that there is there is a precedent in that in the shtetls of Eastern Europe, because the Jews were not allowed to participate in the political life of the government. They did have their own government, so to speak. They had their own sort of council and they had their rabbis and so forth. So they came from a situation where they were accustomed to organizing themselves. That's true. But uh, it's still it's still something to be wondered at, I think. Absolutely. Now, the the site where the synagogue uh, was and we have to say it was vandalized and, and burned. Mm. Now it's an archaeological site, but it also had a house and a creamery. Mm-hmm. But in order for them, they they were on farm, they had farmsteads, and they had to make ends meet. And so I remember you telling me uh, years ago that you said, "Oh, you know, well, it, they had the pants factory." And I remember thinking the pants factory was going to be a building. Well, the, the, all this pants and clothing production happened in probably in people's living rooms and kitchens where the stoves were during the winter. Talk a little bit about how they had to make ends meet. Well, yeah, they had no, um, when they first got there and they needed to raise money to buy the land, they had no, they had no jobs. Who was going to hire somebody who couldn't even speak English? So, that's exactly what they did. And they probably bought a couple of sewing machines. And in their living room, they would do what they call piecework. Piece right. Yeah. So they get the collar, they get the sleeve, they get the back, they get the pockets, and they'd stitch it all together. And then they would send it back to New York. It would come out in, in pieces, they stitch it back, stitch it together, and then send it back to New York. But they not only made coats and vests and suits. They made suspenders and wallets. And one of these articles mentions how you can hear the whir of the <clears throat> sewing machine. And P- and the kids, everybody, that's what they did. And uh, that sustained them until they could maybe, you know, get a job somehow or start a little business or earn their money in a different way. How I'm just the sort of segues. That was in the very early days. <clears throat> but by the turn of the century, they found a lot of them, not everyone, a brand new way of making money, right? Exactly. <laughs> they became um, bed and breakfast, but it was more than breakfast. It was like a week. It was like three months. You came in April and you left in the fall because in New York in the summertime, it was hot, it was crowded, it was noisy, and there were diseases. And they just, if you could afford it to come out to Chesterfield, or go to the Catskills, right? Or go to Colchester. Uh, you came with your family, and this was the boarding business. My grandmother had a boarding house. My father, you know, used to wait on table. Once my father had whooping cough, he was sent out to a barn. I hate this story because they were afraid that he'd spread it to the borders. But that's what they did. And that was hard work getting up really early, preparing all the food for these people. I don't know how my grandmother did it. I know because they, like you said, they would come for weeks at a time to escape New York. And of course, New York in the summer, they were always worried about uh, tuberculosis and all kinds of other things. They also sometimes were laid off from working in the textile trade in August. So, you know, the idea Uh went to the country because it was going to be more healthy. But yeah, if you're the if you're the hostess, if you're the home boarding owner, then you've got three meals a day. 
and you've got to go milk the cows to get the milk to use. You've got to go get the eggs from the chickens to use. And then you've got to be able to provide them with a little entertainment. Now, a lot of times that entertainment was pretty simple. It could be, you know, walking down to the creek. It could be playing games outside. It could be something pretty simple. But you were responsible for people 24 hours a day. And I think yeah. that's a lot of food and a lot of laundry. So you, you really didn't have a life. You sort of worked and you went to bed and you woke up and you started working. It wasn't like going to a job because you had all these people to to take care of. And uh, but 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 I have to say, my aunt Bess would often remark, we were poor. She said, but we were happy. People were, as you said, there was uh, there were games, there were dances, there was a dance hall. They did square dancing. They learned how to Yankee square dance. They uh, they probably sang a lot and they. They went blueberrying. They went swimming at Kosofsky's swimming hole. So they entertained themselves. And of course, they had to go to synagogue all the time. So it was an amazing life. But for the people who owned the boarding houses, there was a tremendous amount of work. But listen, it was worth it. Put it that way. We'll be back in a minute with our guest. I'm Kathy Hermes, the new publisher of Connecticut Explored. If you're enjoying our Grading the Nutmeg podcasts, I feel sure you'll love our print magazine with its articles, photo essays, and all the news about upcoming exhibits, history-related events, and historic places to visit. Subscribe now at ctexplored.org. Thanks for listening. Now back to our Grading the Nutmeg podcast. Now, didn't your family also eventually own the general store? Uh, well, I have two sides. I have my paternal right. and my maternal. The general store was owned by my maternal. This is the one I'm speaking of who came from Ukraine. That's my mother's family. And uh, yes, the great grandfather started a general store. I don't know if he bought it from somebody. I know that it burned down in 1928 and they rebuilt it. It's still there today. I think it's a Sitco gas station. And I remember going into that store and seeing these huge vitrines curved and under the glass, little trays of candies and, and, you know, lemon drops and all the good things the little kids love and food. And it was, it was, um, I think they've completely destroyed the store now. They just have a very small section, but yes, that was a general store. There wasn't the only one. There were a couple of others as well. So by the time we get to your mother's generation, now your mother went to college Right, she went to Connecticut College, first one in her family. Well, she, she had a very, very smart father, I have to say. She got to go. <laughs> well, I, I think these people were always had, you know, talent and intelligence. They just never had opportunity. That was the thing. But your, your mom, who did go to college and was a college graduate, wrote her memoir, uh, I Remember Chesterfield. And that was the first volume I read about Chesterfield and was so surprised at that time to think about this Jewish world that existed and coexisted with the Yankee world uh, yeah. in Eastern Connecticut that you don't really get that sense of today when you drive through Eastern Connecticut. How did you decide really to make it a priority to save that history, both on the ground and you know in yeah. documents? I just want an, uh, an aside that I forgot to mention. In my mother's book, I remember Chesterfield. She details the kind of meals the boarders had every day. 
And it's an amazing story. I hope people will uh, will get the book because she had a ma- an amazing recall. She, um, her mother, obviously grew up in Chesterfield, married a man from Norwich. My mother grew up in Norwich. She go back to Chesterfield to visit her grandmother, and she remembered all these marvelous things, right, of a time that no longer exists. And she brought them back to life. And this was. It was in her heart and soul, particularly since she married my father, who also had come to Chesterfield with his family. And it was part of my parents' life. It was part of my life as a kid. Every single Sunday, what did we do? We went to visit grandma in Chesterfield. And we went down there for the holidays and to the little synagogue. So it was part of my life. It was certainly part of her life. And and, there, and there's one other stream of um, importance here, and that is that Harris Kaplan, the, the uh, great-great-grandfather from Ukraine, uh, had a lot of children as they all grew up and married and had more children. They created something called the Kaplan clan. And for years, all the descendants would meet in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Then it dwindled out, I think. But there were still certainly people living in New London, living in Hartford, the Savin family, the Kaplan family, who had this attachment, right, to to their own personal history. And it was it was their personal history, but it was also American Jewish experience, right? So I guess we were always trying to figure out what can we do to preserve it. So in 1986, was it 86? Yes. I don't know. I really don't remember why or how, but I had this idea to put up a monument as a tribute to them. But that's still didn't mean that we owned the land. It was a defunct society. Everyone had left Chesterfield. Somehow we were trying to, I remember we were trying to give the land away to protect it, <laughs> trying to give it to the East Lime Land Trust or the Nature Conservancy. Nobody wanted it. Thank you. So finally, after my mother died in, in 2006, uh, Carl Fleischman, he's a real estate attorney in, in, in Hartford, right? He's a friend of mine. His wife, Muriel, and I went to Sedgwick School in West Hartford. I said, how can we do this? And he was extremely clever and extremely deft in this. We got 19 of the descendants to sign affidavits. And I wrote a little piece about the history. The land still belonged, as far as the town of Monfield was concerned, still belonged to the uh, New England Hebrew farmers. Just that who were they? So we reactivated as a legal 501c3. And that instantly gave us uh, you know, legal possession of the land. And once we had the land, then we could proceed to, to do all of the um, designations that, that we've fortunately been able to secure. And if you ask why, it's like, how could I not? That's right. So when we, when we first met, I know if you're on Route 85 and you're in Chesterfield, which believe me, it does not take you too long to drive through Chesterfield on your way to New London. <laughs> But minute, you're, at, two minutes. you're at an intersection and you walk up the hill and there's the monument for the synagogue. Uh, when I first when I first met you, we you were working on um, a threat to the property that they were going to widen the road. DOT was going to widen the road and take part of the property. Talk a little bit about how the other parts of the archaeological site. You had the place where the house was and you had the place where the creamery was. And all that would have been impacted by a new Route 85. So you are right. 
uh, in 2000, long before we reactivated, the Department of Transportation purchased the creamery part. There are two parcels to this. One is where the synagogue is and the community house and the mikvah. And the other was the creamery. The creamery and the synagogue built in 1892. But the creamery sort of belonged to the Baron de Hirsch Fund because they, they loaned the synagogue $3,000 in order to build it. It eventually went bankrupt because of the boarding house business, anyhow. And the Baron Hearst was going to auction it off. And my great-grandfather wrote this beautiful letter uh, in Yiddish saying, please don't put this up for public auction because this is right next to our synagogue. And who knows who would buy it? It belongs to the community. So the Hirsch Fund relented, sold it back to the community, to a member. So it, the creamery became a another boarding house called Galper's Inn. And eventually was in the possession of one of our members who sold it to the Department of Transportation. But even though they owned it, when um, Bruce Cluett did the first, you remember, because you were instrumental in getting us this grant from the state of Connecticut, who has been fabulous in helping us to preserve this land. When he created this historic site, it was both the creamery parcel, which belonged to the DOD, and the synagogue parcel, which belonged to us, New England Hebrew farmers. So now, marching forward to 2022, the synagogue portion has been, we've gifted it to the National Archaeological Conservancy, but the creamery part still belongs to the DOT. All right, so go back to your question. Yeah, they were going to redo that whole intersection. That's why they bought it, they bought that piece of land. Now, supposedly, they're not going to redo the intersection. They are going to close the intersection and relocate it further south on 85. But it still um, poses a threat to the poor Creamery Foundation if they do any construction there at all. And so this is now our most important next project, is to get the Creamery Foundation, which still stands, stabilized. And eventually, when they close the intersection, and God knows how long this is going to take, God and the conduct, they probably will give it or sell it back and sell it to the Archaeological Conservancy. So the two pieces will be together again. That would be very nice. So some of the things that I've seen happen over years and years that have just been fabulous I just want to touch on, they include the archaeology, and we knew that, we knew where the synagogue was, obviously, we knew what it looked like, because there's photos, and some people would say, well, why did you bother to do archaeology? You already knew where the synagogue was, and you knew what it looked like, but they found interesting clues, like blue glass that came from the windows that has a color blue that has a religious meaning for the synagogue. And so there was even new material, new information that came from that archaeology. They also did archaeology at the creamery site and at the Shukat's house site, community house site. And do you want to explain what a mikvah is? Yeah. This is, this is something that's unusual. <clears throat> the creamery, I, I, I don't think they have yet done any real archaeology. Oh, okay. At the, at the creamery. And I'm sure in the future this will happen, but not. The mikvah is a very ancient ritual. 
And there are some people believe that the Christian baptism has its roots in this ritual. But, you know, water is a purifier. And people all over the world have, have realized this in, in various civilizations. So the mikvah was first for the high priests to cleanse themselves, you know, before praying to God. Eventually, it became a ritual bath, um, sometimes for men, but very often for women to purify themselves on a monthly basis before they got married, after birth, and so forth. And the interesting thing was that although they, when they first got to Chesterfield, they probably just walked into a brook, I don't know, <laughs> to a stream, because there are no showers around and there are no constructions. But they, in the basement of this little house, which we think was built in maybe 1908 or so, they dug a series of steps. And all it was was steps down, and then you fill that whole section with water. The women would walk down. They'd say their prayers. They'd walk down. And uh, there was an attendant there. It was in the basement. And then that was considered their, their mikvah immersion. And then they would emerge purified. And it also has another connotation, which I love a lot, that you're in water. You're not on land, right? There's nothing human around you. And you're sort of suspended. And therefore, you're more in touch with the universe and with God than you could be if you were walking someplace else, right? So it was a very, I'm sure, uh, gratifying, purifying experience. So yes, I didn't even know the mikvah was there for years. I don't know even when I first discovered it, I can't even tell you. But once it was discovered, these steps, which are exactly the same dimensions of the ancient mikvahs in Israel, two and 3,000 years ago. And when the University of Connecticut and Nick Bellantoni, who was also a great friend to us, and Stuart Miller, who was a mikvah specialist, investigated, um, they were bowled over. And as Stuart wrote a, a huge book, what he called his magnus opus, about the ancient practice of the mikvah in, in, in the Galilee. And when he, after he did, they did the excavation in 2012, he added an entire chapter to that book on Chesterfield because it was so unusual because most people coming to the United States, throwing off their old traditional customs, right? Assimilating, but not in Chesterfield. They, they wanted to, it's an interesting exercise. How do you remain true, right? to your traditions and the things you're, and at the same time, assimilate so that your children can come, become part of a new society. I think they did a great job of. <laughs> I know, and I, I've heard Dr. Miller's lecture and I've heard him say that when Dr. Uh, Bellantoni called him and said, would you come look at this rural synagogue site for me in Chesterfield, Connecticut? Dr. Miller said he didn't hold out a lot of hope that there was going to be anything he was going to be particularly interested in. He got there and he realized that the steps were, as you say, the same as he had seen uh, in the Middle East for these what he calls sacred pools. And he was just astonished, you know. And so that push and pull of staying part of your traditional belief system and staying in your religion and then being in a, in a whole new environment and trying to figure out how to do it. I also thought it was really interesting, even when even when the archaeologists were starting to talk about, well, was this a mikvah? 
there was this discussion about, well, how in the world do you get water? You don't have running water in this house. Well, how do you get water to this thing? And that lo and behold, they found an, an entire pipe that came from a creek that was nearby, installed the pipe so it was kind of on an incline, and they could actually have water come to this house basement to make the mikvah and i just thought that was like astonishingly you know clever on their part to say the least well i think that when they decided to purchase that piece of land for 70 dollars in 1892 january that that exactly that that was the reason not only was it well located but because of the water that came from across the street uh, not in a culvert at that time, but came across the street and flowed onto the land and went down towards Powers Brook. And that went to the down to the Latimer Brook. We went down to the Niantic River. So it was because it had the water there, not only for the mikvah, but to power the um, creamery, the steam-driven creamery. So it was a very felicitous location for all the things they needed to do. I just have a couple last things I, I definitely don't want to miss. Yep. One is that you you reactivated the society, you have you started the research, you've got the designations, but then you really reached that critical point where you had to say, well, how is this going to go forward? Who's going to be responsible for this site? And what's going to happen to it in the future? And so you worked with the Arche- uh, Archaeological Conservancy, and is that's a national organization. Tell us a little bit about why they thought this site was so important that they ought to be responsible for it in the future. Yeah. Well, I, can't, I really can't say, but they did. And Kelly Berliner, who is this terrific woman, she's the, she's the uh, Northeast Regional Director. Um, has called it one of the most, if not the most, or best researched Jewish sites in America. I mean, there are lots of historic synagogues that have been documented, but not sites, so to speak. The Archaeological Conservancy basically started with saving indigenous Indian sites in the Southwest. But over the decades, they have expanded. They have sites for slavery plantations, sites for early 19th century industrial sites, Quaker sites, American revolutionary sites. And now they have a Jewish site. So it takes all these little pieces to make the American fabric, no question. But yes, I feel a great deal of um, gratitude. And it took us like almost five years back and forth, back and forth, determining the uh, donation agreement which we finally signed uh, at the SHPO offices in the fall of 21. And then it was actually transferred to them, filed in the town of Montville, the land transfer last June. And that means, and we're, we're just, in the, just in the midst of forming the management committee. And we have sort of state, national representation and representation from, from our organization. And I can, own, I mean, I'm 85, who, I mean, I can't live forever, but I hope to live a little bit longer. But, you know, it has what's going to happen to it. So I think that having the ownership of TAC is just fabulous because they will protect it 
in perpetuity. And we're hoping to, I'm sure they want to improve it. I mean, they might do fencing. They might do, um, when they close the intersection, parking. There might be interpretive. You come with your cell phone and you punch in New England Hebrew Farmers and you can read. You're standing at the site. You just don't see much. You see the monument and the rehabilitated foundation of the synagogue. But you would be able to read, right? the guide and learn love. So there's a lot of, or there might be a little kiosk. There's a lot still that, that might happen that might be of interest to people, I hope. And I'm just speaking of uh, wonderful new ways to get information. Yeah. The history world, uh, the fact that now you can go to so many websites that have just tremendous digital offerings where you can read histories and look at documents and learn all kinds of new stories and look at photographs. I certainly think your the Descendants website, which will have the link in our show notes, is wonderful. And I wanted to have you just close by telling us how the Descendants, how well the Descendants have done across the world and how many you will identify. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, first of all, we have about 40, a little over 40 members all over the United States, California, Colorado. See, uh, Portland, Oregon, Florida, Maryland, wherever. These are people who have made contributions that have given us matching money for state grants and so forth. So they've been very involved in the whole evolution of the site. I think they did great things, as I mentioned in the article. I mean, we have one descendant who's at Princeton working in nuclear fusion. We have another um, who's an astrophysicist at Columbia. Um, we have somebody at NYU, a tax lawyer in um, Indiana. I mean, the point is that given, as you said, the opportunity to maximize your potential, then people certainly have taken advantage of it. And I think that the New England Hebrew farmers are just uh, are now part of the American mainstream, like every other immigrant community who came to this country. Well, thank you, because I think they've just been a tremendous success. I think uh, Russia's loss was our gain. Uh, (laughs) Congratulations on saving the site and congratulations on the descendants working together for that important goal and really keeping this story well illustrated and well known. So thank you so much for our discussion today, Nancy. Mary, I have to thank you, because as I mentioned, you were one of the first people who realized the, the beauty of this project, truly, and was able to enable us to get the money to do the, the research and the archeological survey and to start us on this path. And you remained a great friend to us and we really appreciate it. And the state of Connecticut has really been really wonderful. You can't do these things by yourself. Well, thank you so much. I'm telling you, Nancy, there was something evocative. I always tried to figure out what it was. I don't know if it's just being Famine Irish or what, but I could just <laughs> identify with these people from day one showing up in this country and not having any advantages in Russia and coming here. And it's just been a marvel. It's just been marvelous. And these projects don't happen unless they've got a spark plug named Nancy Savage. So you <laughs> know, you're somebody that's going to just keep, you know, push pushing along because you look back, Nancy, and you've just got one building block after another. And this story can't be forgotten again. 
because it's now recorded in a number of different places. So right. the National Register of Historic Places. So um, congratulations and okay. I well, I should have said and you know a thank you to um, a thank you to Connecticut Explored for your interest in this topic and this site and for all of the work that Connecticut Explored has done in saving, preserving, and celebrating Connecticut history. It's really been marvelous. Well, thank you. Read more about the New England Hebrew farmers in Nancy's article in Connecticut Explored's Winter 2022 issue. And don't forget to listen to Grading the Nutmeg, episode 94, Connecticut's Jewish Farmers. Links to the New England Hebrew Farmers of the Emanuel Society website are in the show notes. Fresh episodes of Grading the Nutmeg are brought to you every two weeks. We've just launched our Facebook and Instagram pages. Please follow us on social media to get the scoop on new episodes, behind-the-scenes photos, and information on upcoming programs. This episode of Grading the Nutmeg was produced by Mary Donahue and engineered by Patrick O'Sullivan at High Wattage Media. I'm Mary Donahue. Please join us in two weeks for a new episode on Grading the Nutmeg.